Hey, everybody. Atomic Moms is a weekly parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. I'm your host, Ellie Noss, and I join forces with celebrities, best-selling authors, parenting experts, and caregivers all over the world to hear their unique stories in this universal experience of raising a child. You can find us at AtomicMoms.com, iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms, social medias at Atomic Moms. I'm cringing right now because my husband called me out last for last week's episode with Randall Winston because he was like, at the beginning, he's like, you did an Oprah voice. And I was like, honey, that was just me being intimate and sincere. Um, I guess he's not used to hearing my intimate <laughs> and sincere voice. Anyway, he called it my Oprah voice. Uh, this week, I'm going to be doing the kind of sore throat acid reflux voice. <sighs> There's no winning. You know, actually, I am winning because I just opened a box of Girl Scout cookies. Um, and I think that the Thin Mints have just hit my bloodstream. This is going to be a really fun episode. Uh, <laughs> a titillating opening. So... First of all, I want to say that we're crushing it. Um, I say we because listeners, it's you and me in this crazy game and you're listening every week and I'm putting out every week. My husband might not agree, but I'm putting out every week for this podcast and uh, we're in the top 25 kids and family chart on iTunes all the time because y'all are sharing the podcast uh, with friends who are subscribing and I can't tell you... Um, how grateful I am and how good it feels to beat Elmo and Taylor Swift's fan club in the uh, iTunes kids and family chart um, because I love Elmo and I really love me some Tay-Tay, but it feels good to win. So uh, thank you for sharing. And uh, I would reach out to the mom blogs myself, and that's been on my long list of things to do. But there has not been enough time between editing and researching and setting up interviews and raising my toddler because I'm always imagining her at like age 12 being like, mom, you weren't a mom because of your mom podcast. Not that I even know what a podcast is. That's so ancient. Um, I don't know why I said ancient like a valley. That wasn't good. How about um, mom? Like what is a mom podcast? What is a podcast? Like, oh, is that that thing that people did for like a few years? Yeah, I heard about some like phenomenon called serial, but no one does podcasts anymore. We listen to things on our spaceships because in 10 years, our children will be driving spaceships. (laughs) Okay, back on track. On Atomic Moms today, our guest is Emily Fillmore. We met when we were both speakers at Dr. Shafali's inaugural Evolve Summit. Okay, so Dr. Shafali wrote The Conscious Parent, um, which I highly recommend. Uh, Also, the Dalai Lama highly recommends it. And so uh, we were there for Dr. Shafali. We both were on stage talking, and she was so fun and so warm from the instant I met her. And I loved hearing her talk. And this is a woman who grins as much as I do. And so when we're together, we look kind of psychotic. Um... (laughs) I was watching Grease live the other night, which was so amazing. Um, That was such a fun show to watch. If you haven't, find it. It was incredible. It like constantly blew my mind. 
And Vanessa Hudgens singing at the end, it was so gorgeous. And I actually saw her in spin class this morning and I wanted to accost her and just be like, oh my God, your work was so beautiful. But I didn't do it, guys. I didn't do it. Um, But it reminded me of that because there's this one blonde character who's like the cheerleader chick and she's smiling nonstop. So that reminded me a little bit of Emily and me, except we're not fake about it. Okay. So we smile too much. Um, We've also made very different parenting choices. She does attachment parenting. I don't even know where my kid is right now. (laughs) And so for a long time, uh, I thought that attachment parenting meant like no swings and I must carry my baby all the time and co-sleep and nurse on demand. And I, I loved our swing and I love our crib and we did block feedings and Emily also homeschools her daughter. And I pushed my daughter into two mornings a week preschool the day she turned two. Um, and she was mad when I came and picked her up, actually. Like, she never clinged to me. And I know that would be a really hard thing as a parent, and I'm sure a lot of moms listening are like, hey, you don't want to wish for that. It was, like, heart-wrenching. But I kind of wanted at least, like, a hug and, like, a, oh, I don't know if you should leave, Mommy. My daughter was like, peace out. And when I came back at lunchtime, she was like, no, Mommy, (laughs) eating. It's kind of funny how a mom, it's like a mom's superpower. We can turn any positive, like, oh, my child's independent and secure in her attachment with me and is like totally cool in this new environment. And I, and my mom's superpower is to like turn it so it's like some guilt tripping negative thing. Like, why doesn't she need me? Okay, from the beginning, this podcast, see, I asked CNN Kate Baldwin to help me with transitions, and I think I need to go back for a follow-up lesson. So we're switching gears again. But the point, okay, so the podcast is neutral territory in these alleged mommy wars, okay? It's a Switzerland of mom podcasts. Sure, I have an opinion of what's right for my family, but I don't have an opinion on what's right for yours. Because quite frankly, it's none of my GD business. I can learn from all types of parents and from parents who've been on all types of life journeys. So yeah, Atomic Moms is fair and balanced and slightly judgy, but like in a funny and endearing way. I mean, I've had gay dads, a Mormon mom. I'm about to talk to a Muslim mom. I've got an intense journalist mom, a home birthing mom, moms who've chosen to have a C-sections right out of the gate, moms who nurse for 10 years. That's not true. I haven't had that. Um, moms who nursed for a year, but they did it because they'd have cleavage for once in their lives. That was this mom who talks to you every week. (laughs) And, um, and now we have a homeschooling mom. So listen to me when I say the collection of people listening to this podcast are the coolest people on earth because we refuse to be pigeonholed. I'll probably never make money on this podcast because this whole world seems to be about derision and picking sides. And I won't, gosh darn it, there's Waldorf, there's Montessori, there's Playbase, there's Rye, and we're cool with all of it. And we are more than the individual choices we make for our families. My question to you today is, would you homeschool your kids? Do you homeschool your kids? How about attachment parenting? Do you love it? Did you try it? 
Emily Fillmore, our guest today, was a lawyer before she became this homeschooling mama and prolific author. Emily co-wrote, along with Neil Donald Walsh, who, by the way, I didn't realize this until I did the Dr. Shafali event. Neil Donald Walsh is like a BFD in the spiritual world. And I also bet that's the first time Neil Donald Walsh has ever been called a BFD. <laughs> um, so Emily and, you know, Neil and Lori Lankins Farley, the three of them, they wrote Conversations with God for Parents. And Emily is also the author of The Marvelous Transformation, Living Well with Autoimmune Disease, and the children's books, It's a Beautiful Day for Yoga and It's a Beautiful Day for a Walk. And again, when I met her, it was like we were two kids at camp. And I was like, oh, you're going to be my friend, right? (laughs) So Emily does attachment parenting with her nine-year-old daughter, Sage, and also her 22-year-old nephew, Ricky. So I can't wait to ask about that. Looking forward to this one, guys. Get ready. It's going to be a great one. Thank you for having me, Ellie. I'm so excited to be here. And I have to tell you that I was sitting, how overwhelming is this to be at the conference with Dr. Shafali, Neil Donald Walsh, Malika Chopra, and I'm sitting at a table to sign the Conversations with God for Parents book. And Ellie comes up and she says, can I stand by you for a few minutes? I was like, oh, look, this light being, she's going to stand by me. So you did the same thing for me. So thank you. I can't believe that you have an autoimmune disorder. It wasn't until I looked up your website or maybe I saw on Facebook or something about how you had had your cane in your purse. I had no idea all weekend. You seem to have more energy than all of us. Yeah, I was struggling. Um, You know, only a couple of people knew. Sandra knew. She kept coming over. Are you doing okay? Mm -hmm. Lori and Neil, of course, know. Um, So I was, I would disappear every once in a while. I missed when they gave out my children's books (sighs) because I was kind of up in the balcony with my feet up. Um, I think it hit me over the weekend because this is the first time I've actually been able to be out at a, on a big stage kind of about the parenting book. Um, my soul agenda just took over and my body just kind of had to come along. And then when it was time to rest, it was, it was utterly time to rest. I had no choice. I had to go rest. And I did enjoy the most blissful and complete sleep at night that was restorative. Um, but I, by the end of the third day, um, I did, it was it. I couldn't even stay long enough to say goodbye to you. You were talking to someone and I was standing there and I was like, my body's throbbing. I just can't yeah. even do it. So, Can you explain to our listeners? I mean, a lot of people don't know what autoimmune diseases are. Do you mind just explaining a little bit about it? Sure. Uh, I have something called dermatomyositis, which literally means inflammation of the skin and the muscles. So autoimmune disease is just a complex process where your body no longer knows the difference between your own cells and cold cells or flu bugs or bronchitis that comes into your body. And so my body is in a heightened, constant heightened aware state of attack. And so uh, you can't see it because you know, I wear makeup when I'm mm-hmm. going to be around people, um, not at home, but, you know, on these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, but I have a red 
um, mm. diffused rash all over. You can actually see it on my chest. You can I can show you my hands, um, but I have rashes all over my body. I have um, I've had it for twenty years, so I have a sustained, just weakened state of my whole body, and um, lots of people have them. There are over. Um, 80 autoimmune diseases that are recorded right now, but they're still finding more. And I believe eventually they'll find that they're all probably one disease with many symptoms. Mm. Um, but there are 50 million Americans with autoimmune diseases. And my specific disease is under the umbrella called myositis. And there are only 50 to 75,000 people in the United States that have my disease. So it's still really not understood. The idea of our bodies attacking ourselves, mm -hmm. it's so intense. And I think about it often because of, well, I went into anaphylaxis once and um, that was intense. That, I guess that wasn't my body attacking. It's, well, it sort of was. It was it like a fake, a mm -hmm. I guess I it's said an overreaction. it was an overreaction. Mm -hmm. It was like I was taking Cipro mm -hmm. and then the next thing I knew I almost died. It was like my body freaking out because I was taking a simple antibiotic for a sinus infection mm -hmm. or when I had my... Uh, my tumor it was my own cells, you know, eating each other mm -hmm. <laughs> into this bone dissolving thing. And it's that fight within us. It's like, it's so hard to sort of reconcile that there's a part of me that's attacking itself. It's very difficult. Yes. And after 20 years, um, you know, I have my ups and downs and I've managed it both with Western medicine at times and with natural holistic kinds of things at other times. And this latest flare I had just this summer came after traveling, after traveling, after traveling. And I was in denial for two months. And my doctor in July said, your skin is showing me that your disease is becoming active again. And I said, no, 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 it's not becoming active again. I'm fine. And at September, it became so bad that um, I actually got scared and I don't normally allow myself to get scared. And I do also have a book about this, about living mm -hmm. a happy life in spite of having an autoimmune disease. It's called The Marvelous Transformation, if anybody wants to check it out. Yeah. And um, it's it's really about how I've created my own reality. I've in spite of the internal physical problems, I've been able to manage my internal landscape and have an, a happy and an exciting life with allowances. We we make lots of modifications to our lives to be able to um, manage the physical symptoms. But um, when the attack starts to happen again, I always, even though I've written the book about how to stay mm -hmm. happy... I go through the whole entire grief process all over again. Mm. How could I do this to myself? What is going on? And I, I go through the whole questioning. I, why have I forsaken myself? God, why are you doing this to me? You know, what did I do? What did I eat? And, and then I eventually come back around to, I didn't do anything. It's, you know, biology meets environment. And, mm. and mine actually started from the original cursor for it was, I had mono and I took Cefcil because they thought it was strep and it caused an all over body rash that they believe is what triggered my autoimmune disease. So your daughter, Sage, how old is she? She's nine. And is she your biological child? She is. Yes. She's the only one I was able to carry to term. Okay. Yes. The only one to carry to term. So was she... Um, 
It's okay. You can't, you can't defend me anything you ask. So to go ahead. No, I, yeah, I'm just trying, I guess I'm figuring out what to ask. I want to know, you know, were you nervous having an autoimmune disease to be carrying a child and like how your body would respond to that? Yes. Actually, I went to a high-risk pregnancy doctor for a preconception meeting and we came out of it and my mom begged me, please do not get pregnant. You can adopt. My husband's an attorney. I was an attorney, but I stopped. But, you know, you're people of means. You can adopt. Do not do this because you you could die. Don't do this. Yeah. Um, and I said, I that's not an option for me. It's going to be fine, you know. Um, and so I had a wonderful high-risk pregnancy doctor who took good care of me. I had an acupuncturist as well. And um, that pregnancy was okay. We had some ups and downs. My body, not only was there a risk for me, but there was also a risk for her. So about halfway through the pregnancy, my body started to try to cut off the placenta, which is its way of rejecting the child. Wow. So I had to go down prednisone, which caused a whole nother other things. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up with shingles and in the hospital for in isolation for over a week and all kinds of things. Oh my but, God. And you're still this bright, bright light. <laughs> That's why I had to have you on this show. Yeah. You know, because you really have you so many it. things to complain about. Like you could be the grumpiest person on earth. And yet I just see the biggest grin. Oh, thank you. I'm still alive and I have my perfect, you met her for a second. I have no. my perfect little light. She's, she's beautiful. She's wonderful. And, you know, um, I desperately wanted more children and we tried and we lost two after her. And, and then of course, after experiencing what a, a documented miscarriage looks like, I know I had multiple ones prior to her mm-hmm. and, um, and everything in my world happens the way it's supposed to. So, I now know that the reason I didn't have any other children was because I couldn't have handled them physically. Mm-hmm. It's hard enough to, you know, put my energy into her. But also I had this mission in life that was coming up that I didn't know about at the time. I was going to write these books. And and how was I going to be able to do kind of, you know, not to get too big in my own skin. I don't mean it that way at all, but kind of try to help be a mother to other people and and teach other mothers how to to mother from their soul if I was physically worrying about trying to mother. And that doesn't mean that I wouldn't have welcomed other children and been fully passionate as a mom at home if I never had written any books. But I wouldn't have been able to do this if I had other children. And then, you know, my my nephew Ricky, he came into our home when he was 19. And I have no greater joy than having both of them and parenting both of them and, you know, getting to see how wonderfully they flourish. Can we talk a little bit about attachment parenting? Sure. I love it. Because it's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. It feels like a catchphrase, like, oh, we're into attachment parenting. Can you explain to listeners who may have never heard of attachment parenting, uh, what your interpretation of it is and Mm -hmm. how we would see it in your home? Sure. So first of all, um, Dr. Sears it, William Sears is who is kind of known as the propagator of attachment parenting. And he and his wife and children have have built kind of a, a whole body of work around it. Um, but to me, the actual practical understanding and, and everyday use of, of attachment parenting in our house is just that we meet our children, because uh, I count Ricky as my child, where they are that day. And we address their needs exactly as they present. So Sage is nine and a half. She's almost 10. And 
she has just now, for the first time in her life, gotten to the point where she is actually sleeping in her bed alone on a consistent basis all the time. Okay, so up until age nine, she was in bed with you and your husband. At least partial part of the night, yes. How um, big is your bed? We have a king size bed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and someone who has autoimmune disease, sleep is very important. But, right, um, that's what I'm thinking too. Yeah. With the autoimmune disease, how could you sleep well with her next to you? Most times. Because I tried to have Sabrina in bed with me the other night and she had her legs between my legs. She's like a little monkey. Like she wanted to get her like, if she could have had her fingers like in my mouth and up my nose, she would have done it. Well, we sometimes call it, but she's trying to crawl back up into the womb. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, We call it like the koala cling, but I swear she's trying to get up there. You know, um, The way I look at that is I am going to live a whole entire lifetime after she's out of my home and I can sleep then. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to look back and say, gosh, she wanted to cuddle with me when she was nine years old. And I thought because society told me she should be in a different bed that I wouldn't let her. And now she's 20 years old and nobody would look at me. And I gave that Mm -hmm. up when she was willing. So I just... I've just looked at every moment as what does she want, need, ask for right now? Mm -hmm. And what does it feel like to me inside? So we've just done it. And sometimes my husband will leave and go to the spare bedroom or her bedroom to sleep so that we have a little bit more room and so that he can sleep because, you know, he still has to go to work. (laughs) I'm partly because of my illness and partly just because of circumstance have stayed home with her. But um, do you, are you... (laughs) How about her getting alone time? Like, is there, are there moments when she's by herself? Like, how does she learn to be okay with being by herself when she's able to always crawl in bed with you at night? Yeah, so that's one of the things about attachment parenting is that children know themselves and they know when they are ready for alone time. They know when they need alone time. And she has been, she's always been very vocal about her private space. You're in my personal space, mommy. (laughs) So there are times where we're sitting and I'll say, oh, mommy could really use a hug. Well, just a second, mommy. I am in the middle of something and you're in my personal space. Um, You know, I think that I said this a couple of weeks ago and and it, it really was funny, but I think that these these beings come out of our tummies and they've been warm and enveloped in all of the coziness. And the first thing we do is we as a society expect them to be alone in a bed. And the only time on this planet that people are fully expected to be alone in a bed is childhood. The time where monsters exist and the oh, it's cold and You're scary. right. We all get boyfriends after that. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then after that we can we can choose to have a partner in our bed with us. Yeah. The only time that we fully expect someone to be alone in bed Not is when true. they're at their most vulnerable and scared. And I mean and all my our listeners know like I had my daughter in her crib from day one. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with either right. way to me because your little one didn't need yeah. it then. No, mine, she didn't. Yeah. Mine was what we call a habitual consistent, constant nurser. She was more latched on than Mm -hmm. she was off. I would nurse her for 45 minutes. She would take a 15 minute break. She would nurse for 45 minutes. And this lasted for 15 months. 
Yeah. Wow. And, and I'm so glad you brought that up too, because, you know, we say it's, well, it's, it's each family's choice or each child's choice, but to also mention that like, it's also a biological thing because Sabrina with nursing, well, first of all, I felt like with her, she was getting up every two and a half hours anyway. It wasn't like she was alone for very long. I was like, well, she's alone this much. Or like if she's asleep in a swing or on me uh, during the day, it's kind of this day and night don't exist in those early months anyway. So that's sort of how I justified it. Also, I'm a crazy person if I don't get to sleep. And I nursed so much better going into her room and being in our chair. Because when we were in bed, I would just be, it just didn't like, I was so lazy about it. Like it didn't work as well because I'd start falling asleep again and then I'd get frustrated. And and she did not need, um, I don't know, man, there was like a ton of calories in my milk or something because she would nurse and then be done. And so, yeah, that that sort of, there wasn't that constant need. Um, with attachment parenting, what does that look like once the children are in elementary school or being homeschooled? Because I definitely want to talk about yeah. homeschooling. I mean, I feel like homeschooling is like the ultimate attachment parenting. It is. And it is the ultimate of being completely attached and never getting a break. You know, it's... I can't imagine being my child's teacher. It's, you know, it's amazing and terrible and fearful and loving and wonderful Let's and jump crazy in. all at one time. Um, we initially decided, you know, if, if you look at anything that I've written, I, I'm very outside of the mainstream. So we initially decided that, you know, oh, she's reading early. Oh, da, 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 da. So there were all these reasons. But one of the main reasons was because she was ahead of the curve. You were like, yeah. these other kids are going to slow her down. Well, no, we just <laughs> didn't. <laughs> I'm kidding. Everyone knows. Well, you know, no, we didn't want to put her into a place where she was going to be put into a box. Mm -hmm. And that's my biggest thing is I didn't want her to be told, well, you're not old enough to read yet. So stop reading because I have heard of people being having their children told that you can't read yet. So just go work on your ABCs, you know, and I didn't want that happening to her. And it's not that we're you know, we're both highly educated, but it's not that we wanted her to be overachieving. It was, we wanted her to be able to achieve at her own level. But on the other hand, and probably the more, the biggest impetus for me was I didn't want her to have to conform to society's idea of children should be seen and not heard. This is what children are supposed to act like because here at home, I'm teaching her, you question everything that you're told from the time she was one, you know. That's a lot more work for you. It is. It's <laughs> a mean, lot no, of work. I mean, in raising a child who questions everything, you've created a monster for I, yourself. I have. And I used to rub <laughs> my tummy when I was pregnant and I would yes. say, I want you to be a strong, independent woman mm -hmm. and I will just grin and bear it through your childhood because I know it'll be better for you. And every once in a while, my mom will come out with, how's that working out for you? I think about that all the time. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> this is my cross to bear. Mm -hmm. And this is worth it. It is worth because it. then when she's an adult, she hopefully will bypass some of the issues yes. a lot of us have. Yes, but it, I have to be the one to step up and contain it now. Yes, yes, because yes. it's and a lot easier it. and encourage it because it's a lot it. easier. I mean, I get the old method. Yeah, man. Oh, it's, it'd be it's, so much easier. It'd be so much easier. <laughs> like. Yes. Be seen and not heard. Oh, yeah. It got to be a lot easier. I know. And boy, are there times when we're in public when she's going to, I hear it. I feel it. I feel her energy rising and I feel something totally personal that I've said. 
that I mean fully. And I would say it personally to anybody who asked me, but I feel something coming out of her mouth that just is not going to sound right coming out of a nine-year-old's mouth. (laughs) My mommy said, and I'm like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And, you know, and then I realized, you know what? She is her own person. And if she says it, I can do damage control later. Well, you know, that is how we feel. And she's just not, you know, da, 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 da. And, and my husband, who is a saint, I swear he is a saint because he puts up with everything about me and he still lets me trace, chase my dreams and, and, and he still holds my hair when I puke because I don't feel well, you know, mm-hmm. and he does everything that he can to possibly take care of every single facet of who I am. He just smiles at her and he says, that's my sage. Mm. <laughs> He's just so wonderful. But back to homeschooling. Yes. I don't want to, because I know that's really important to people. Homeschooling is a huge challenge. And it, I don't think it's something to undertake lightly. But I don't think parenting is something to undertake lightly either. And I think that we've lost that in the society. But homeschooling, you know, if you are going to look at your child and you are going to say, your education, whatever it's going to look like, is the most important thing that I want to gift to you and you have the ability and the means and the time and the patience and the veracity and the knowledge to sit down and be able to feed that to them and the ability to say when you've had enough and say, you know what, today homeschooling is going to be, let's pop in a couple of videos about ancient Egypt and this is going to be homeschooling or today homeschooling is going to be walking in the park. It is, it is really one of the most beautiful gifts of my life. And, you know, like I said on stage the other day, just a couple of weeks ago, she was at my throat about everything I asked her to do. And I lost it. And I said, if you don't stop, you're going to school. And it wasn't <laughs> one of my prouder moments, <laughs> but it we do have our bad days. And then we always kind of had to hit that reset button. And then we, then we moved back into bliss again. So some people would wonder about your child being able to socialize? Oh, that's, I hate that question. I hate Well, I'm going to ask it. Ask away. How does Sage socialize if she's homeschooled? And also, how are you, this one you're going to like be writhing. How do you, I'm not even going to look at you when I ask it. (laughs) How do you prepare Sage for the real world when you do have to, well, maybe you don't. Maybe you can just be a creative or an entrepreneur where you don't have rules. But most people grow up and they end up being a part of the system where they have to go to an office and they have to listen to other people and they have to be bored and they have to do things that they don't want to do, which is what a lot of schooling (laughs) prepares you for. The factory. The factory. Okay. So first of all, I mean, you only saw her for a second, but if you got a chance to sit down with her, she is the most socialized child that I could ever hope that she's going to be. I'm not going to compare her to other children, but she spends her days with adults and children. Oh, I have to be clear about how I say this. Children don't treat each other very well. So if that's the kind of socialization that society wants me to teach her, I'm not doing it. I do not want her to learn that socialization means being mean to each other and bullying each other. Socialization to me is that she can hold on, she can hold an intelligent, warm, loving conversation with any adult she meets. Because we're homeschooling, she's out in the world with me on a daily basis. You know, schooling takes a much shorter time of the day than the school day at school takes. So we get our work done and then we're out in the world. She talks to doctors, she talks to lawyers, she talks to librarians. 
museum people, you know, docents at the zoo. She is constantly socialized with the people who are going to teach her how to exist in the real world out there, not on the playground. Now to take it a step further, we do have her in activities. And that was really funny during this weekend when there was some question of, you know, do you have your child in 10 activities or one activity and and kind of where is the consciousness of what you do? And in and, and my, my opinion, you let your child kind of drive what activities they go in. She happens to be a figure skater. It's completely self-driven. She believes and I'm I'm not going to take it away from her because maybe she is the one. There there are five who go to the Olympics every four years in ice skating. She believes that she can be an Olympic ice skater, and her coach actually thinks maybe she can too. And so, what does it take to be an Olympic ice skater? It takes belief in yourself, and it takes a lot of practice. So she does both. So maybe she will, maybe she won't. I don't know. But in her figure skating, she gets to be with other children. And then we go to the library and she gets to be around other children there. So, And how do they interact with her at the library or with ice skating? Because if you're saying that children are sort of, I correct me, okay, like the inherent bullies, how do you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they're inherent bullies. I think that when you kind of get into groupthink and you get the whole, you know, on the playground, you know, competition and and children um, swarm and right. they want to have the hierarchical society right. even within their own thing. Um, I think that because she has, she dips her toes into interactions with children. And she, competition. And being competition. an ice skater. I mean, yeah. it's super competitive. Right. And, you know, I think that part of how you deal with that, at least what we've done, is we have always talked about being a solid and complete human soul inside before you step outside of the home. And so we have really tried to stress with her that it doesn't matter what anybody says to you. It doesn't matter what they do to you. They could punch you in the face. They could, you know, kick you, punch you, anything. And what matters is if you know that you are a whole and complete divine being inside, none of that matters. And so that doesn't mean that she doesn't have difficulties with friends. But when she does have difficulties with friends, our path back to wholeness is a lot shorter than it could be because she has a complete understanding of herself inside. So it's not that she doesn't have difficulties when she's with other friends, but you know, if she was at school, she'd be having those difficulties anyway. So I think that they're just more concentrated, they're shorter, and we work through them faster because it's not on a day-to-day basis. And I think that, you know, she has a lot more time to be a whole being of light all the time. And then she has the shorter periods where she feels the kick in the gut and she comes back from it. Um, and she is also, she's been told by a couple of her peers, you're just always so nice to everyone. And that's not always a compliment coming from children I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but Sage says, they meant it as an insult, but I took it as a compliment. And I said, well, then if you think that's a compliment, you should take it as a compliment. And maybe eventually they will learn from you that being nice to everyone all the time is a trait that they might want to learn too. When we were talking um, this weekend, you brought up a gathering that you had and that Sage gave you a really good lesson. Would you share that with our listeners? Yes. <clears throat> so I decided um, I live in St. Louis and there are some some community of conscious parents, but I decided that I wanted to try to start putting one together. So we started a with my child 
alternative parenting and education gathering. And what do you mean by alternative parenting? Uh, you know, just more conscious parenting. Okay. Attachment. And what, how would you define conscious parenting for yourself really quickly? Just because some, some listeners haven't heard our episode with Dr. Shafali okay. and they're like, what the hell is conscious parenting? Uh, well, to me, um, attachment parenting, conscious parenting and spiritual parenting, they're all kind of merged together. In fact, I, I wrote an article that said my parenting and spirituality are inseparable for me. And that was based on the little talk I gave at the gathering mm-hmm. that we had. So to me, conscious parenting is meeting your child again at their level, knowing that what they're asking you for is what they think they need at the time. There's no manipulation. It is truly what they want. And that, uh, you know, there might be alternatives for education besides just the regular public school Montessori might be an option. Um, you know, just the different opening the world up so that parents don't think they just have to do what society has, has told them okay, to thank do. You. Sure. So we had over 61 families that had RSVP'd that they were coming. And we were actually quite nervous about this because the room that we had was not large enough and it was the room was donated to us and it was a beautiful space. But we realized, you know, 61 families RSVPing will probably get 20 to 30 and we thought that would be perfect. You know, isn't it funny when you, oh God, when you have a family, you are so, you do so many things you don't end up showing up for. Right. Yes. <laughs> Something inevitably happens. Yes. yes. Or someone doesn't wake up from a nap or whatever. There's a million reasons. Right. And November in St. Louis, it was November 14th. And, you know, it had been like 40 degrees for days and days and days. And whew, out of the blue, 78 degrees that Saturday. <laughs> so we had three people come to the door. No one wants to be inside. No one wants to be inside. And you know what? It was perfect. It was fine. It was perfect. It was our first time. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to give these three people the best show I can. We had seven speakers and it was a three and a half hour event. And it, and we oh were trying gosh. to do it in a new way. Instead of people speaking for 15 minutes, they were. I asked them all to speak for three to five minutes and then take questions because that's the kind mm-hmm. of event I want to go to. So... The, the beginning oh my gosh, so they all have three-minute speeches and then and there's no one to ask questions. questions. Yes. So Sage, though, is um, she wanted to use my yoga, my children's yoga book to lead the families in doing yoga poses because we wanted to make it really interactive and everything. And so it's her turn, first time. And she comes up there and I said, Sage, it's time for you to do your yoga poses. And this is in an open room and it's very intimate. And she says... Nobody showed up. I am not doing it. And she didn't say this to me over in a corner by myself. She didn't say, pull me out of the room to say it. She said it right in front of the three people who were there. And I, I, I mean, I am human. I had every bit of ego and anger and frustration and how dare you come up in me. And I wanted to, you know, grab her by the arm and say, you will do it. or And I took a deep breath. And I looked at her and I said, sweetheart, there are people here. We have three guests. And she said, but 60 people said they were coming and it's not fair. And how could they do this? And, you know, she's almost in tears. She's just, and I, and I, and in a second, I realized she's afraid my feelings are hurt because she's very caretaking of other people. And I looked at her and I said, Sage, yes, other people said they were coming and more could still be coming. You know, people are notorious for running late to yeah. events and everything. And I said, but these people who have arrived deserve our attention 
just as much as if there were 60 people here. So we're going to still give them the event that we said we were going to put on. I'm not doing it. She crossed her arms. And I said, and I looked at the crowd because I'm like, I am on stage in front of these people. I'm literally on display with my parenting right now. Mm -hmm. Think fast, think fast, think fast. How am I going to get through this? And I looked at her and I said, honey, we need to respect the time of the people who are here. And I'm asking you to help me do this with me. And then I looked at the people and I said, this is a very good opportunity for Sage and me to demonstrate that we don't have attachment to results and that we put this work in and that all of the people did not show up that said they were going to show up, but we honor that you are here. And so we are going to still put on what we have. And I turned to Sage and I said, could you please? And I, you know, put my hands into namaste prayer pose. Could you please think of this as a gift to the people who are here and give to them what we were going to give, whether the whole crowd was here or not. And she begrudgingly said, I guess that makes sense. Okay. And so she did the yoga pose. You know, she was going to do three yoga poses in between each speaker to kind of give people Mm. a chance to stretch and everything. And she did. And the second set, she kind of tensed up a little bit and I reminded her and, and it went through. And, you know, I mean, she and I both learned a lesson there. I think, you know, that you can't, you can't put your own happiness on whether people do what they say they're going to do. I also learned that I can keep my composure Mm -hmm. in a very intense situation because holy cow, I could have lost it. And I could have just completely undone everything about myself that I'm trying to do, you know, because I am not perfect and I do lose it every once in a while, but that is the worst place for me to lose it. Yeah, it was a test. (laughs) It was a big test. And and she did great. She did a really good job. And we did have more families filter in through, you Mm -hmm. know, a couple more families did filter in through the day. And, um, And then at the end of the day, I came back and checked back in with her. And I said, you know, Sage, I said, it really did help mommy, actually, that fewer people were there this time because I've now learned some things about the next time we put this on. And, you know, it was it was good. I I know that some of our listeners have to be wondering a little bit about your nephew, Ricky, your 22 year old nephew. Yes. And you say in the bio that you practice attachment parenting with him also. Yes. How do you practice attachment parenting with a 22-year-old? And how did he come into your life? Um, well, he he came home from college and was a little bit up in the air of where he was going to go. And uh, I had always told him throughout his whole life, you have a safe place to come if you ever need somewhere to go. And so he, at that point of his life, decided that that we were where he wanted to come. And so he he ended up coming to live with us. And, you know, as a 22-year-old who, or I guess he was 19 at the time, as a 19-year-old who had been living on his own at college and had, you know, made some quote-unquote mistakes at college and had seen that um, when left to his own devices, he wasn't exactly getting the results he wanted. He said, you know, I, I'm ready for what you have to offer me. And mm. so he came in and... Uh, parenting a 19 to 22 year old from at the time stage was, you know, six or seven. That was a huge leap. And it huge was a leap. And I'm imagining he was not raised with attachment parenting. No, he was not. Okay. Yeah. So you're introducing this. Uh, yes. And you have your own child at home that mm-hmm. you're also trying to keep in this sort of beautiful 
warm yes. bubble in a way. But I was always a large influence in his life beforehand. Okay. So it wasn't like it was yeah, like baptism by fire. fire. <laughs> totally. It's not like he's a stranger. Right. Um, so, you know, he asked me, what are the rules if I move in? Um, and I said, well, we don't have any rules. The only rule we have in our in our house and, and your your listeners might be dumbfounded by this, but the only rules we have in the only rule we have in our house is that in every interaction we ask ourselves what would love do now. So if you're gonna have a conversation with someone, you ask, how is the most loving way to say this? You know, if if something gets spilled, we don't yell, we don't scream, we try not to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how well, would love would, handle what would love do now? Yeah. How and would so, love handle this? If I my husband's gonna listen to this and it'll be like 10 o'clock at night, he's going to tap me on the shoulder and he's going to be like, what would love do now? (laughs) (laughs) What would love do now? But that's a different kind of love. It's a different kind of love, honey. (laughs) But it's a really good tool because it's, it takes away the need for the minuscule rules. You know, Um, if, if something gets spilled, there's no need to yell. No child ever spills anything to ruin anything on purpose. No child ever, you know, my daughter. Do you think they do it to get your attention ever? Because I feel like Sabrina does it to get my attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's their own love. Their love of you and needing your attention. And that goes back to the attachment parenting thing is they don't do anything manipulatively. It's all about needing something from you. And and like Dr. Shavali said this weekend, it's tapping into the, the base core need. So spilling the milk all over the table is not because they want to make a mess. It's because... You've missed the 12 signals before that. My daughter kicking a ball and breaking this beautiful infinity statue that my husband had bought me was not because she wanted to break the statue. It was because, you know, I was probably distracted with the phone or whatever Mm -hmm. at the time. And so when she broke the statue, I said, oh, gosh, I would really love to scream and go off. And how dare you? And oh, my God. And and instead I said, you know, she didn't do it on purpose. And since she didn't do it on purpose, there's no use in yelling at her. And that's just going to break her spirit and Mm -hmm. all of that. You know, I go down that line. And then I said, so what would love do now? Love would say, in order to help her learn not to do things like this in the future, how about you help me try to fix it and give her a big embrace of a hug? I know this wasn't on purpose and I'm not crying out of anger and fear and Mm -hmm. disgust with you. I'm crying because this replaceable statue, which is not the end of the world. It only means something to me because my husband gave it to me in love. Yeah. But it's replaceable. And if I never saw it again, big whoop. What matters to me is that you know that I love you more than that statue. So let's see if we can fix it together. And if we can't, oh, well, I'll get over it. But if we can, then we've now made a new experience together. And in the future, when I say to you, please don't kick the ball, you might break something you might remember that was difficult, you know. So back to Ricky. Yeah. So I he asked me, "What is your rule? What What are your rules?" And I said, "You know, okay." So he was a he was a young adult man, <laughs> and I said, "You know, I, I would really like at least until Sage is a little older for her not to see girls traipsing in and out in the mornings." <laughs> You're a really nice aunt. I'd be like, yeah, go but, elsewhere. But you know, the other. <laughs> Sorry, Ricky. I love you, baby. But the other thing was, I just said our only rule is... Is Ricky going to listen to the mom podcast? Oh, yeah. He's totally okay. into spirituality and everything. Sweet. He'll be love like... Love it. He'll love it. Yeah, Ricky, a tongue mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I said, you know, just ask yourself in every interaction, what would love do now? And he's 
he read uh, Neil Donald Walsh's uh, Conversations with God for Teens. I gave it to him when he was about 11 years old and he read it then. And he's read Deepak and Eckhart Tolle and all of that through the years. So he knew what he was coming into, you know, but yes, but parenting and helping him work through, you know, just the normal, even just the normal things of a 20-year-old male, a 21-year-old mm-hmm. male, a 22-year-old male relationships and all that kind of stuff has been really interesting and exciting for me because I'm getting to help him form on his terms yeah. who he's going to be as an adult. And it's beautiful. I love it. I couldn't ask for any bigger gift than for him to have come to live with us. Will there ever be a time when you say, hey, Ricky, you're old enough now. No. No, he could live with you forever. He could live with us forever. We've told him, even if he's like, he has a room in the basement and we actually laugh about like, his hair is going to grow into the, you know, Sage is going to be off at college. His hair will grow into the carpet. He'll be (laughs) down there. Oh, you know, no, I mean, I, I feel like that, you know, you, you give your kids a safe place to be. And when they are ready to fly, then they fly. But I'm not going to put a time limit on it. No. You say we are all one and how children already know this. So, and that it's our job to help them maintain that understanding. Yes. So can you talk to us a little bit about that, about how we're all one and how our children already get it? And it's kind of our job to to keep that lesson for them. Because sometimes I think, you know, we shake it out of them, yes. right? We beat it out of them. Uh, Not literally. Definitely. Well, some people literally, but like we, you know, right by shutting them down or the competition or saying you need to be more like this. Um, we create an environment where they forget that we're all one. Exactly. I think that uh, children come into this world understanding from a spiritual perspective that we're all related. We're all connected. We all come from what, what I envision as the swirling ball of energy, which is the source of all life of the universe. And we're all sparks of that. And I think that children come into this world knowing that because if you see children on a playground and they look at that kid and they run across and they embrace each other with the most heartfelt, strong embrace and they've never met before and they're best friends by the time they leave the playground. Adults don't do that. You and I might have done that slightly, you know, but mm-hmm. adults don't. Yeah, it felt like we were on a playground. I did. Yeah. It, it did feel like that. But adults don't generally do that. And so children know that. They know that at the core of their being. We beat it out of them with society by saying, you don't have to be like Joey. Why do you always want to be like Joey? What, you know, um, just because Cindy likes pink doesn't mean you have to like pink, you know, and even in sub- such small and subliminal messages, we're telling them to feel separate, to feel division, to feel, you know, that's your toy, not his, or that's his toy, not yours. In in every little message from the time that they're small, you know, not yours, mine. I feel like we just send a message of separateness. And so I think that if we could find a way to get out of their way and allow them to feel oneness, here I go again. Ellie, you're going to regret this. Here I go again. I love it. <laughs> We're ready. You know, um, children aren't even allowed to hug each other on the playground at school anymore. Do you know that sexual harassment? I did not know that. I have, I, I know of someone, and I know them pretty well, whose child, because he was a male and was on the bus and he tickled a little girl's knee got suspended because it was uh, considered sexual harassment. How is that okay? 
How is that okay? He wasn't touching her private areas. He tickled her knee. How is that okay? We don't allow our children to have any physical affection towards each other at schools. Did she take it as not affection? Is that why he... I don't know exactly, you know, how it metamorphosized, but she must have, you know, the parents the next day went in and said... and. But I mean, if the school had said, well, it's tickling, you know, like... Right. Or tell them not to tickle, but don't suspend them. Right. But the shame of not being able to... But it was actually termed a sexual act. Wow. And I don't know what word I can use. So I was in sixth grade when a boy came up and grabbed onto two matching parts of my anatomy and twisted them hard. And he didn't get in trouble. Now that's sexual harassment. Yeah, that is molestation. That is touching someone's private areas in an unwanted way. How is it? But we've, you know, and and the little girl, you know, I mean, maybe she was offended by it, but the that got tickled on her leg. But why have we gotten to a point where in society where any kind yeah. of physical touch between boys and girls is it's not okay? Automatically sexual. But back when I was in sixth grade and uh, right, well, maybe because they're trying to excellent. change it to be the devil's advocate. Maybe they're trying to. Now I'm really self conscious because the devil's advocate, and you are one of the. <laughs> authors of conversations with God for parents. Jesus. And then I just said Jesus. And now I'm really spiraling. Um, How? But maybe that's because people are trying to take a step to prevent like what happened to you in middle school. Do you know what I mean? They're trying. They're saying, hey, we can't let this, you know, it starts with tickling on the bus and it ends in sixth grade there. Like we've got to put we need to have no tolerance for this. Maybe. And I think that is what they tell themselves. But where's the rationality in telling children that they're not even allowed to hug each other like in friendship? Yeah. And, nuts. you know. Yeah. But and and here's the other thing. The, those parents were also told that if the girl had tickled the boy, it wouldn't have been the same problem. That's interesting. So we've come to a place where we want to be so sterile and we want to put right. up walls be- between children and we want to tell them that it's not okay to touch and love and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Instead of telling them the truth, don't touch private parts. We're so afraid of the word sex with our children. If we just said sex is something for adults, you do not touch each other's private areas. And newsflash, here's the real words for those parts. Don't be afraid of them. They're nothing to be afraid of. Girls have vaginas. Boys have penises. Girls have breasts. It's okay. I was taking a bath with Sabrina the other day and she was facing me and she pointed uh, at my nether regions. <laughs> you she, can't even say, she it. Goes, say it. She goes, she goes, it's beautiful. <laughs> It's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's part of it the human form. Say the word. You can't even say it. Vagina. Thank you. Vagina. Hey, I, I went to women's college. I can say vagina. <laughs> <laughs> but you see how restrained and chained we are that you even, yeah. you started well, her saying, favorite, her second word is boobies. Mm-hmm. Boobies, boobies, boobies. <laughs> boobies, boobies, boobies. She likes to twist those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, man. So... W- I'm trying to, I feel like I have a million more questions, but I guess if I were going to wrap it up, if somebody wants to know more about attachment parenting, where should they look? And if they want to know more about homeschooling, 
Where should they look? What is your Facebook page? My Facebook page, if you just search Emily Fillmore, F-I-L-M-O-R-E, author, you can find my Facebook page. Uh, WithMyChildSeries.com is where you can find my children's books. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. That's my mom's session for the day, everybody. Uh, and, uh, with my child, blah, 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 mm-hmm. with my child series, it's I have two books in that series. It's a beautiful day for yoga, and it's a beautiful day for a walk, and it's about bonding with your child through simple everyday activities. And emilyfillmore.com has all of my writing in one place. But if you want attachment parenting, I would really go to Doctor Sears. I mean, he's okay. he's the one that knows all of that. And then um, for spiritual parenting, uh, you know, you can come to my website and I direct you around for that. And for people who don't know anything about Neil Donald Walsh, what would you say? Uh, he wrote, he has 29, well, 30 books now with our book about new thought spirituality, which kind of breaks away from the typical societal religion and is more about inner spirituality and your connection to God, because we are all God. We are all one. We are all part of the divine. And when we come to earth, we just kind of forget, uh, which is part of that breaking process that we were talking about with children. We don't want them to remember their power because if they remember their power, then we can't make them do what we want them to do. And so Conversations with God for Parents takes the 29 books of, of you know that he had previously, and he, had, um, he has 25 core concepts that he kind of pulled out of Um, his body of work. We took those and we said, okay, these 18 concepts we think could be applicable to child rearing and to teaching your children. And then we kind of made those concepts a little bit more digestible for children and wrote a book about how to both parent through those concepts and how to teach them to children. And when a lot of people hear the word God, they kind of, you know, tense up because it's this idea of like, oh, it feels separate to a lot of people. It feels like there is absolute separateness. There feels like there's judgment. feels like, well, I'm not accepted by God or by, and they get it confused with religion. Right. I actually, a lot of times I I couldn't do that when I was writing the book, obviously, because it was within the cosmology of conversations with God. But to me, God is more the source, the energy, the, the all, the universe. Um, I, I don't particularly see the word God in my own life as much as the source Okay. Or the all. And does your source, you know, there's no accept, judgment. There's no judgment. There's no judgment because we are God. Every religion is accepted. Every, all, every, paths, all paths lead to the same place. Every sexuality, every, every. Oh, yeah. Everything. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, you know, I think that when we can parent our children in a way that they know that they have unconditional acceptance from us and that they trust us that we're going to always accept them and always love them no matter what, then they grow up with that understanding and acceptance of themselves. And so then they're not afraid to tell us, I think I might be gay. I think I might like someone of a different race. I think I don't want to be a lawyer like you and dad. I want to, you know, go gallivanting around Europe and be an artist. I mean, they can tell us our truth, their truths, because we've always accepted everything about them. And we showed them that we've been accepting our own truths along the way as well. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. All right, all right, all right. That was me trying to do Matthew McConaughey. Emily's books will be up at AtomicMoms.com. Actually, I have a whole bookshop now from our guest authors at AtomicMoms.com. It's a great way to uh, help out Atomic Moms too because it's an affiliate link to Amazon. 
Okay, you guys ready to say goodbye? Wouldn't it be cute if we did a goodbye song? I wish I could sing. Um, I can't. So let's all say this together. Trust in your goodness. Live out your greatness. Rock on. Atomic Moms. Yeah, don't worry. I won't do that again. <laughs>